Paul Manafort's going to jail. President Trump tweets how awful all of that is, and the president's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, appears to actually float the idea of pardoning Manafort. Trump launches an actual trade war with China, which, of course, retaliates. More fallout from the Justice Department's IG report, which, as you all know by now, had something for everyone. Um, Trump blows up the moderate House immigration plan, or at least seems to, the White House uh, now suggesting that maybe he just misunderstood the question. Jeff Sessions and the White House both invoke the New Testament to justify their policy of separating children from their parents at the border, Nobody can figure out why we're supposed to be so mad at the Canadians, and we're only halfway through the month of June. Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is June 15th, 2018, and I'm going to have to do today's podcast all by myself. Don't ask. But I want to start with the gospel according to Jeff. That would be Jeff Sessions. As you probably already heard, uh, Jeff Sessions, and who knows what was his motivation. Maybe it's because some evangelical Christians are beginning to point out that, you know, the policy of intentional cruelty aimed at separating families um, uh, is is really not acceptable from a Christian point of view. And these are evangelicals who have been willing to be, um, I would say, loyal, uh, march and lockstep with the administration up until now, even Franklin Graham breaking bad against it. So who knows whether that was in... Jeff Sessions' mind when he took to the podium and basically decided that, uh, well, he's giving a speech in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and he wanted to address some concerns raised by our church friends about separation of families. And then he goes on to say, persons who violate the law of our nation are subject to prosecution. Orderly and lawful processes are good in themselves and protect the weak and lawful. And then he cites... Then he cites Romans that basically says that uh, governments are uh, instituted by God and everybody has an obligation to follow the law. Uh, The White House doubled down on that, asked to respond to Sessions' comments. Sarah Sanders says, it is very biblical to enforce the law. That is actually repeated a number of times throughout the Bible. (sighs) This once again tests um, several things including the willingness of folks to go along with with all of this, as well as their understanding of what actually the Bible says, uh, including much of the New Testament and even Leviticus. But the thing that I think struck a lot of folks is that uh, Jeff Sessions' citations of Romans 13 to justify public policy um, actually has a lot of historical resonance. That's a nice way of saying that I think for decades people have understood that that this was uh, really not the way to go, particularly if you are a small government conservative. And when he says, uh, I want to, you know, here's the direct quote. I would cite to you the Apostle Paul in his clear and wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of government because God has ordained the government for his purposes. Well, where have we heard that before? Well, during the Revolutionary War, guess what? The Loyalists used that particular citation to argue against the American Revolution. Uh, The defenders of slavery invoked that. I'm guessing that around the world uh, that uh, tyrannical, corrupt, authoritarian regimes have, in fact, uh, resorted to citing that that one cherry-picked element um, from from St. Paul's letter to say, basically, you need to go along with whatever government does, right? Um, But on the other hand, and maybe, look, maybe there is something good that will come of this. Maybe people will actually go back and, and read their New Testaments, read the 
whole, read the whole uh, letter to the Romans. Um, go back and look at the Gospels about what Jesus said about caring for the, co- the poor, um, the, the, the dispossessed. Even Leviticus talks about the way that we're supposed to treat strangers and the downtrodden. But you do get the sense here that the administration knows that it's losing this debate. And and even losing this debate on parts of their base that they had been willing to take, or they'd been able to take for granted for for some time. Um, Because otherwise, why would you invoke invoke the Bible to justify something that frankly is an affront to the conscience of Americans? Look, this is not this is not squishy liberalism. And I think you're you're seeing this in the reaction of some of the evangelicals, even congressional Republicans, who again won't do anything about it, but recognize that these pictures. These images of small children being taken from their parents and kept from their parents for a very, very long time offend the conscience at a deep level, especially if you are a member of a political party or a movement or a religion that cares deeply about family values. That actually, this is one of those, this is one of those tests of the beliefs. And I, I am kind of struck by the, the, the president, the White House's uh, continuing insistence that this is not their policy, that in fact this is the, uh, this is the fault of the democratic law. Look, I mean, there's, th- this is not a, today feels like, by the way, a kind of an exhausting day. Um, a little bit earlier today, I said that, you know, fact-checking the president on a day like today feels like you're peeing into a hurricane. I was quoting uh, a, 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 a colleague, that wasn't, that wasn't my original line, but I think it's, it's it captures, it captures the the futility of how do you actually deal with this much misinformation, and, and it's not a matter of media bias. To point this out, it is not a matter of of you know, being squishy on the president's agenda. To point this out, I mean the reality is that that when the president says that this is uh, the separation of the children from the from their from their parents is a result of uh, the democratic law no it, it's a matter of policy now you can support the policy you can actually articulate that yes it is cruel but um cruelty is a deterrence because that's what this is really all about we will make this handling of families so onerous so cruel that it will dissuade people from coming to the border. That is the actual rationale for the policy. If you support that policy, then say that, yes, what we want to do is we want to make coming here so unsupportable, so appalling, that people will make the other decision, will make a decision not to come, to stay where they are, to go someplace else, right? That, that, is, that is the argument. It's interesting, and it's a tell that the Trump administration is not willing itself to make that. Of course, there are a lot of, of course, the usual acolytes who are willing to say this, who who get a certain frisson from from embracing the cruelty and the, the the boldness and the strength of all of this. I mean, the North Koreans would be willing to do this, but uh, the 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 deflection is indication that I think that they are losing this particular uh, debate. Okay. Um, also, and we're going to have to see how this uh, plays out. The president uh, is asked about what he's going to do about immigration. And as we know, the Republicans had uh, been working very hard and coming up with, uh, with with alternatives. There were two alternatives that were going to come up for a vote, the good lad hardliner bill and then the more moderate bill. The president, uh, I, I think, was, uh, was quite clear in saying that he's not going to sign uh, the bill pushed by the moderates uh, because it... Uh, 
it didn't give him what he wants, that uh, unless he gets something really strong, really tough, uh, a, a wall, he's not going to sign it, which, of course, uh, makes it increasingly unlikely that the House of Representatives will be able to get its act together. It was always going to be a heavy lift. Now the White House is suggesting, well, maybe not. Maybe the president just misunderstood the question. I don't know. I mean, how many times do we have to go through all of this? How many times do we have to go through the kabuki dance of the president saying, you know, I will support something and then he doesn't? All right. Uh, what else is in the news? We're, we're, we're still trying to get our heads around the, the, the trade war, and we'll talk about what Republicans are going to do about that. We have some, uh, some pieces in the Weekly Standard that make it pretty clear what exactly the Republicans will do. I mean, you know, in theory, the Republicans could have a lot bigger say on tariffs, but that's probably not going to happen. Haley Byrd has a really strong piece up on the site right now, deferring to Trump on trade and concluding that essentially Republican leaders weighed their options and have come up with an admittedly insufficient solution remain deferential to the president while airing half-hearted complaints about his trade policies. In other words, GOP lawmakers are all bark and no bite. I think that Haley absolutely nails that exactly where we're at right now. And it seems so familiar. Actually, I said I was going to talk about it a little bit later. Might as well just talk about this. And in, 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 uh, also in connection with what happened this week. I mean, remember when, when Trump announced, and Haley writes about this, you know, back in March when, when Trump announced that he's going to propose what he's going to propose these tariffs or impose these tariffs on steel and aluminum, um, bypassing Congress completely, one of the sharpest critics of that was Congressman Mark Sanford from South Carolina. And he, stu- you know, he raised his hand and said, you know, Congress should step in to prevent that. This is what he said. The nature of the party in power is that everybody wants to be deferential to the executive branch, but that's not what the founding fathers intended, doing anything less than robustly pushing back against a stupid and destructive and dangerous idea would come back to haunt us all. Well, we saw what happened. Sanford was insufficiently deferential to the president. president uh, tweeted out his opposition and... uh, he was uh, defeated in a Republican primary by somebody who is going to be more of a Trump loyalist. And the reality is that, you know, w- once again, now with Mark Sanford hanging from the lamppost, it's going to make it much less likely that other Republicans are going to be willing to step up and do anything about all of this. Although you can really sense that uh, there's more anxiety, not just among free traders, but there's kind of an anxiety about how far is this trade war going to go. And we talked about this on yesterday's podcast. Gary Cohn, former advisor to the president, suggesting that, well, um, if, if this thing gets out of hand, it could undermine much of what the Republicans have done on the issue of, you know, on the economy. You have these tax cuts that have succeeded in really boosting, juicing the economy. But if you get into a trade war, you can undermine a great deal of, of that. Um, but the other story that continues to play out, and the president has no real apparent um, reluctance to continue to praise the thug dictator of North Korea. Um, also on the Weekly Standard page, Rachel Larimore has a great piece. Trump, Donald Trump is not a dictator. He is not a dictator, but 
He sure is jealous of the loyalty that his dictator friends command. Uh, there have been some misleading reports this morning about what the president said uh, um, about how he wants his people to behave the way the North Koreans uh, uh, behave to their dictator. Uh, there's some sense in some cases he was misquoted about he wants them to stand up uh, the same way they do for Kim. Um, apparently he was saying sit up. But in any case, in any case, once again, we have this strange phenomenon of his fascination and his admiration for authoritarians. And, you know, and some of the things that he said that that's kind of the old story. The news, the new twist in this is how very specifically he is willing to praise the toughness of a man who is, on the record, one of the most brutal murderers in the world. You know, and Rachel writes about this, you know, that a lot's been made about the way that Trump is legitimizing the brutal and murderous dictator Kim Jong-un in the wake of, of their summit. And he's saying he's got a great personality. He's a funny guy. He's very smart. He's a great negotiator. He loves his people. Not that I'm surprised by that. And what Rachel points out is that he's describing a man who keeps more than 100,000 people in gulags. And to take one example, had his uncle executed by means of machine guns and flamethrowers. Um. <laughs> She says that's both horrifying and unsurprising because he's also praised Vladimir Putin and invited the Philippines, uh, you know, the Filipino president, uh, Rodrigo Duterte, to the White House. Uh, you know, but as almost as troubling is that he does seem to be, and she writes this, Rachel Larimore, that he seems to be internalizing Kim's dictatorial tendencies. I, this is the, the, the strange thing. Um, and, I'm, and I'm way beyond the what if Obama had said all of these things, because we know that that one's too easy. I'm just trying to imagine almost anyone else in American or world politics praising the toughness and the strength of Kim in the terms that he is doing and not fundamentally questioning his values. And she concludes the piece, which I would strongly recommend. You know, it, it can be cringeworthy when the resistance types bemoan that fascism is upon us because Trump is not a dictator. He's not Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin or even Viktor Orban yet. But he sure does seem to be a little jealous of those guys and what they can get away with. Um, speaking of what he can get away with, I had an interesting conversation a little bit earlier from somebody from uh, CBC, uh, CBC Radio. And the Canadians are really trying to figure out uh, what is going on? How? Why is? Uh, why is Donald Trump uh, vilifying Canadians and going after Prime Minister Justin Trudeau? What? What is? What is the end game? Who is he playing to? And I have to say that you know what? I'm sorry. I am not the Trump whisperer here to explain this. But um, you know, looking back on this week, that contrast between the way he and his acolytes have described Justin Trudeau and the Canadians versus the fawning, fawning praise of Kim Jong-un. I think it's going to publish, uh, it's, it's, it's going to, it will pu puzzle historians and psychologists, not to mention economists, for a very, very long time. Because I, I may be missing something, and listeners of the podcast, please correct me if, if, if you think I'm glossing over this, but I really don't know of anyone in this country who really, really dislikes 
the Canadians? Who wants to go to war with the Canadians? I mean, that's why it's a it's a punchline. You know, Ted Cruz saying that, uh, yeah, I really don't think that there is a circle in hell that is reserved for Canadians threatening retaliatory tariffs on agriculture products. Yeah, that's, I don't get that. Nobody gets that. Nobody's mad at the Canadians. Okay, so what do we make of uh, today in Trump world with Paul Manafort? Uh, Paul Manafort uh, going to jail, which was uh, apparently unexpected. Uh, people did not think that he was going to be walked out. I mean, he he clearly was prepared for it uh, based on his demeanor in the in the courthouse. Uh, he's waving to his lawyer, waving to his wife. He ex- uh, you know expected that to happen. But uh, interesting that the president uh, tweets out, wow, what a tough sentence for Paul Manafort, who has represented Ronald Reagan, Bob Dole, and many other top political people in campaigns. Don't know, I'm sorry, didn't know, Manafort was the head of the mob. What about Comey and Crooked Hillary and all of the others? Very unfair. So here you have the president of the United States tweeting out, uh, that uh, that the ruling by a federal judge in this case is very unfair, and uh, then you almost have to see this in in, in juxtaposition of uh, Rudy Giuliani telling the New York Daily News that that uh, here's the direct quote quote things might get cleaned up with some presidential pardons unquote when the whole thing is over in light of Paul Manafort being sent to jail. Uh, yeah, he's definitely floating floating the pardon. Matthew Miller, a former spokesman for the Justice Department, says uh, Giuliani's going to talk himself into being the subject of an obstruction of justice investigation. <laughs> and <laughs> who knows where we're going to go on this? You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm tempted to not even talk about the IG report because there's been so much comment uh, on this. Um, I did mention that it was like, uh, it's like Rashomon watching Twitter and Apparently, a lot of people didn't get my reference to Rashomon, the, of course, the, the, the classic movie that's told from so many different points of view. Look, it's a 500-page report that had just enough juicy stuff for both sides to be able to claim absolute justification. Um, the most bizarre analysis, unfortunately, comes from the president, who seems to think that it was a complete uh, uh, exoneration of him on the collusion issue, uh, totally undermines the Mueller investigation. I mean, one of the reality checks is that this investigation did not look at the Russian investigation, did not look at the Mueller investigation, was focused on Hillary Clinton's emails, and essentially argues um, that uh, the overall decision was not influenced by political bias, despite the incredibly outrageous and indefensible emails, I'm sorry, text messages that went back and forth between uh, some of the FBI agents, um, by the way, one of whom was removed from the Mueller investigation. But there's certainly enough to seize on. And I would will have to say that that reading some of the details of this investigation, uh, including the how badly the FBI was leaking, how sloppy some of that communication was, that uh, wholesale reform of the FBI ought to be on the plate. But is it going to come under the Trump administration? I mean, this is what I want to focus on. You know, the need to depoliticize the FBI has never been more urgent. The FBI's credibility really rests on it not being considered an arm of one party or another. And there's no question about it that that image 
has been badly tarnished, not just by this report, but by some of the decisions that was made by Jim Comey. And I have something I want to say about Jim Comey in just a moment. But uh, you, you, you could certainly imagine that this would be a moment to, you know, fundamentally, top to bottom, say, how can we restore the integrity of the Justice Department and the FBI? Unfortunately, what we're more likely to see is a more aggressive attempt to politicize both of them under the Trump administration. That to the extent to which Trump thinks that he was the victim of some sort of a cabal, he will assert more direct political control over the Department of Justice and the FBI. So while we need to depoliticize the FBI rather urgently, I'm really skeptical that that's going to happen in the near term. Now, um, just a quick you know, bottom line. Uh, there's no question about it. That there were some people in the FBI who really despised the president and may have uh, wanted to undermine him. There's no indication that, in fact, that happened because... And this is where we all need to take that deep breath and step back and look at this from 35,000 feet. The cumulative effect of the FBI decisions was to help elect Donald Trump president. It was to hurt Hillary Clinton's campaign. That's what happened. And then, of course, there's James Comey. On the podcast yesterday, I said that I was probably more sympathetic to him uh, than, um, than than other folks, uh, including at the, at the at the magazine, which doesn't mean that I agree with him. It's just that I think that it is it is fair to say that, and I think this is what the the AG's I'm sorry the IG report said, and what uh, Comey's response was that he made an error of judgment, not of character. It was a uh, he acted in what he thought was good faith, but he got it fundamentally wrong. And it really comes down to, I mean, I, as, and I read, I read his book, that the way that Comey framed the decision, particularly the decision to reveal the renewal of the investigation into Clinton's emails. I mean, I, in that moment, for all the people who think that, the, that this was a, a vast uh, conspiracy, some sort of a you know, deep state conspiracy to derail Donald Trump, I mean, can you remember that this was the, the agency that announced at a crucial moment in the campaign that they were re, uh, reopening the investigation to Hillary Clinton? You look at the poll numbers, and I, I think it's inarguable that the, that changed the trajectory of the campaign. I mean, the the Trump campaign seized upon the FBI investigation of Hillary Clinton, raised the specter of a president under investigation by the FBI, ironically enough. Um, and uh, this race tightened dramatically. I don't think that Hillary Clinton ever really recovered from Jim Comey's decision to come forward a very public way and saying that they had reopened that investigation. And in his book, he keeps, you know, he, he talks about how difficult this decision was, and he made it into a binary choice. He made this a binary choice, this dichotomy. He said, I could see two doors, and they were both actions. One was labeled speak, the other was labeled conceal. And he said that over and over and over again. So in his mind, he framed the issue in that very binary way that that either he kept this secret that they were investigating this if Hillary Clinton went on to be elected president it would look like there was a vast cover up or he could reveal all of this knowing he would be criticized for it but at least saying see I'm being as transparent as possible well the 
the report yesterday um, really took issue with that. They they said that metaphor of of speak or conceal was a false dichotomy. This is what they wrote. They said the, the two doors were actually labeled follow policy practice on the one hand and depart from policy practice on the other. Although we acknowledge, this is from the report, although we acknowledge that Comey faced a difficult situation with unattractive choices in proceeding as he did, we concluded that Comey made a serious error of judgment. Uh, I, I think, uh, by the way, I, I, I tend to agree with that. But also, doesn't it sound familiar? The way in which people will frame these issues as binary choices. And that what you do is by framing it that way, you basically trap yourself into making a decision that on one level or another is going to be either wrong or immoral, or it will violate some sort of a fundamental principle. And we just went through an election where we were told it was the Flight 93 election, right? You know, you'd either do this or we're all going to die. It's, you know, binary choice. The binary choice basically forces you to accept things that would otherwise be unacceptable or to do things that you would otherwise not do because the other choice is so horrible. You know, obviously we need to spend a little bit more time, and I, I, I probably will revisit this on the podcast, This uh, the fallacy of framing issues in such a way that it kind of dictates the demoralization of the choice. If it's like, okay, it's Hitler or Stalin, what are we going to do? Are we going to embrace Hitler or are we going to embrace Stalin? You know, there are moments where there are no good options. I'm willing to concede that. But also, I think that there are times in which if we frame it as a this kind of false dichotomy, we're going to be led into making decisions that are, well, that, that, that blow up. Now, the thing about James Comey is I do think that he acted in good faith. I do believe that in good faith, he created this false dichotomy. And once he had done that, once he had created those, that intellectual handcuff, really think about it as intellectual handcuffs, you know, speak or conceal, then nothing he did was really going to end particularly well. The other problem, of course, is when you put yourself in those kinds of handcuffs, is that even knowing how badly it all turned out, even knowing that it blew up in your face, as, as, as Comey has to, he, he's not willing to acknowledge, really, that, that he got it wrong. I mean, he's willing to, um, he's, he's actually more open-minded in the book than I think people give him some credit for. Um, but, you know, I mean, and I also understand that, that, that hindsight is, uh, is often very, very helpful and it makes everybody look like a, a genius. Uh, but in this particular case, I, I would, I, it would be interesting to hear if you really pressed him, knowing knowing how things turned out, whether or not he might have rephrased that. If if somebody in the Justice Department of the FBI had gone to James Comey and said, "Okay, you know what? Maybe it's not binary. Maybe it's not that that dichotomy of speak or conceal. How about here's you know three different possible options, including obviously a special counsel." All right. Uh, even as uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking here, uh, there's a real confusion going on. What's going to be happening with uh, immigration legislation? What's going to be happening with tariff legislation? Although I think Haley Byrd's analysis about uh, the Republicans 
uh, you know, you know, speaking, uh, speaking loudly, but carrying a small stick is probably going to go on. Uh, but uh, you know, f- apparently uh, Republicans on the Hill once again are they're described as being perplexed at the White House. Stephen Miller, who helped negotiate the compromise moderate bill. Um, was at the center of all this. I mean, isn't he Trump's guy? So he's up there, and all the Republicans think they're dealing with. Okay, you know, this is Stephen Miller. You know, he's the he's the uh, he's the hardliner on this. Um, they sign off on it. Trump says that he won't sign it. And the White House is now saying that he might because he, because he didn't understand that uh, that this was the quote unquote leadership bill. Bottom line, no one knows. Nobody knows what he was thinking this morning. Nobody knows what the state of play is. Nobody knows what he is doing. If there was a, let's say there was a 60% chance that something would be done on immigration through congressional action, I would say that the president's comments, probably given, given the calendar, given the off-year election dynamics, I think that's probably fallen I don't know, what would you say, into the um, low 40s, into the 30s? This is where we're at, where the the unpredictability, which I know we're being told is somehow a great strength, uh, once again has completely muddied the, the picture. But then again, it's Friday, and it's June, and we're about to go off into the weekend. I want to thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, and we'll be back here on Monday, I hope.